0: There is a sacredness to food. Dishes are often rich tapestries of history and culture. They can hold stories of resilience, connection, and sustenance passed down through generations. Today, we're blending the flavors and heritage of three indigenous ingredients that are bound to leave your taste buds and your spirit craving more. Welcome to As We Eat where we explore the intersection of food, family,
1: history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes.
0: And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts, and some that aren't so fun talk about food history, and how food
1: connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm doing fairly well, thank you. I'm really excited to be talking about this recipe today. My curiosity is incredibly piqued as to why you chose it, where this history comes from, but tell me, how are you doing right now? You
0: know, I'm doing really good. We are finally hitting cooler temperatures. We're not in the 99s. We're in the 80s, and I actually have a sweater on because 80 (sighs) is feeling cold to me now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I've done a fair amount of traveling since I talked to you last. It was out in Austin. I was out in Spokane. And both places, it was over 100 degrees. And I came home to 80-degree weather, and everyone was complaining about how hot it was. I'm like, oh, honey, you have no idea. You know, I'm rocking a 63-degree Pacific Northwest morning right now, and I have a long sleeve shirt on myself. Yeah. yeah.
0: But I do agree. I'm super excited about this recipe as well. And I'm very excited to talk to you about what I learned and how it felt to make this recipe. So I grew up in western Montana and we have recently returned to my little small town, my small hometown. That isn't quite as small as it used to be. Things change. I guess you got to get used to it. The valley that I grew up in is flanked by two of the largest of the seven Indian reservations in Montana. And we would go to powwows and we would watch the Indian relay races, which we actually went to a couple of days ago at the fair, which was amazing. We visited the Indian Museum in Browning and even having access to these cultures, to the cultures of the Flathead and the Blackfeet tribes, there's really very little that I know about the tribe and their culture. Mm. And as you mentioned in our last episode, almost nothing about their food other than pemmican and the three sisters. As I was thumbing through the cookbook, the recipe for the three sisters mash jumped out because three sisters was recognizable to me. I remember learning about this companion planting system in school. I couldn't tell you what class I learned it in. But I did recognize it. When we were learning about this, I remember thinking how incredibly in tune that the Native Americans had to be to recognize that these three plants worked together so well. Mm -hmm. And before we talk about the recipe itself, I would like to introduce the three sisters to our listeners just in case they didn't have the opportunity to learn about them in school like I did. So, Native American legend says, I, I have to say that as with most creation stories, there are variations across the Native American community within each of the tribes. So, this is an overview of this
1: story. The mother legend, if you will. The
0: mother legend, exactly. And the mother legend says that Hanging Flower, who was the daughter of the Sky Woman, who is the goddess who watches over family life and community, gave birth to two sons. The first son was eager to be born and came to Turtle Island peacefully and perfectly. The second son, however, was pretty upset about being born last. So instead of coming out perfectly and harmoniously, he decided to cut through his mother coming out of her armpit. And as you can imagine, I mean, childbirth is complicated anyway. But you can imagine that poor, poor mom. Yeah, you can imagine that poor Hanging Flower didn't survive. It was a very violent birth. So her firstborn mm. placed Hanging Flower's body in the earth and from her sprouted three sisters. The oldest sister, Corn, stood straight and tall, protecting and supporting the other two sisters. The middle sister, Squash, grew low to the ground, protecting her sister from weeds and keeping the soil cool and moist. The youngest sister, Beans, was giving and playful, and she pulled nitrogen from the air and climbed through squash and up corn, binding the three of them together. They loved each other fiercely and lived together and never parted. Now, what I really, really love about this story is that it holds a really beautiful parable. Although we each bring something different to the table, we have something to offer. And in that offering, we create something greater than ourselves. The sum is greater than the parts. Mm -hmm. And nutritionally, together, the three sisters provide a rich source of protein, a complete array of amino acids, complex carbohydrate calories, and vitamins and minerals. It's a perfect partnership. And Sean's recipe for the three sisters mash actually feels like a culinary embodiment of the sous chef's mission to celebrate indigenous foods, Reintroduce foods that have and can continue to sustain the physical and emotional health of a culture. Now, the reason that I chose this recipe was first because I was familiar with the story of the Three Sisters, but even more because in 2022, when we were in Arizona, we visited Mission San Xavier del Bac, which is on the Tana Otham Reservation. Now, across from the mission is a kitchen and gift shop. So, Of course, I had to go over there. Of course. The gift shop features all sorts of Native American crafts, as well as some food products. And what really caught my eye was this bag of beans. Now, at the time we were traveling in the van, and I knew that the bag was small enough that I could find a place for it in the van. And because I had never heard of these beans before, I asked one of the clerks what type of bean it was. And she said to me, They are beings that are very important to our culture. And I waited for more. (laughs) And when she didn't say anything, when she didn't explain any further, I thought maybe a prompt to how they were prepared might bring a little bit more explanation to the importance. She just looked at me like that was the weirdest question that she'd heard all day. To her, it was obvious how they were prepared and shared. And why wouldn't I understand that? And I think oftentimes Mm. things are so familiar to us that we don't stop to think that they may be foreign to others. Mm -hmm. What I really wanted to know was why these beans were important to your culture. What was the story of the beans? So I walked out with a bag of beans and lots of questions. So I did what I always do. I started to research. (laughs) And what I discovered was fascinating and beautiful. The beans are called tepary beans. And the clerk was right when she said that they were very important to her culture. What she may not have known, because she was pretty young, is that the beans were almost lost to mismanagement of resources, commodity food programs, and the impacts of what Chef Sherman calls colonized foods. The beans that I purchased were from Ramona Farms. So I thought, this is a perfect place to start my research. And it was the perfect place to start the research because it was Ramona Button, an Otham woman, who is responsible for introducing the tepary beans back to the Gila River Valley. Ramona was raised on a family farm that grew many traditional foods. Now, when the dam was built upstream, the river dried up and wreaked havoc on sustenance farming and the culture. Many of the crops that they were able to grow weren't viable any longer. And of course, their traditional foods were replaced with commodity foods. It's a fascinating conundrum. You mm-hmm. you pull away the ability for somebody to to feed themselves and you think that, oh, we'll just replace it with this because, of course, this is nutritional food. And like we talked about in the last episode, right? Uh, <laughs> not all nutritional food is good for everybody. Exactly. In 1974, Ramona and her husband started farming on the same allotment that her family had farmed, and they started with barley and alfalfa, and then the community elders asked her if she would bring back the tepary beans. And she tells this beautiful story, and I will link to the full video of this because they talk a lot about the irrigation, they talk about her story, they talk about what they're doing now. But she does tell this really beautiful story about going up into the Sacaton mountains with her father and he sets her on a blanket. She was nine or 10 at the time. He sets her on this blanket and he says to her, close your eyes and listen to everything that is surrounding you. And she listens and she starts to name the insects and she listens to the music that the wind made. And then he asks her to open her eyes and tell him what she sees dirt, brush, rocks. That's all I see. It's just brown. Her father looked at her and said, no, I see greenery, beautiful greenery. It's going to come. And Ramona looked up at him, perplexed, and responded, who's going to do it? You are, he said. After the elders had asked her to do this, they started doing some research, and she discovered a couple of jars of white and brown beans. That her father had squirreled away in the house that she grew up in and with those few saved beans she and her family worked to perfect their production process and they now supply these beans to their local community as well as the surrounding areas which i just it just it just gives me goosebumps i just think this is such a lovely story that her father had the forethought yeah. To save these beans after he had told her that she would be the one to bring back the green to the valley, that he saved these and had them in a place where she could find them.
1: Oh, What a touching story. Yeah.
0: I get so excited when I find these things out. I, after I did some research, after I bought the beans, I'm like, you guys, you have to hear this. It's so cool.
1: Well, I'm with you. I think it's a beautiful story. And it it speaks to that family-ness of the three sisters too, right? These are the stories that make you realize you are part of a greater whole. And by sharing the story and by hearing it, you become part of the pattern as well. Exactly. It it now becomes our story too, even yes. though we're not Ramona. I'm cheering Ramona on in my heart, and her legacy is continuing. Her father's legacy is continuing. Exactly. And every time we're eating these beans or even thinking about the beans, we are part of the greenification of her father's prophecy.
0: Yes, exactly. And like you said, we become part of this story. So using the tepary beans in this recipe felt felt sacred Mm -hmm. and inspired. Yeah. Now, the other thing that was really fun about this recipe was making the cedar braised beans. We went up to the North Fork to harvest a piece of cedar to use, which just added another layer of connection and accuracy. I did use canned hominy because I wasn't able to find any dried hominy here in town. But the whole time that I was making this dish, I thought about the story of Ramona Button and her family bringing this traditional bean back to her community. I thought about the story of the three sisters, and I thought about our outing to collect the cedar branch to use for the beans. And much like the cocavon recipe, this recipe felt so,
1: so intentional. Mm. I really love that you went out and harvested cedar because those are the details that make a dish fun and exciting and interesting. And the reality is that you're doing what you can. We don't live in an indigenous way anymore. So as I kept enthusing about in our last episode, being able to go out in my backyard and harvest a handful of wild rice, It's just something I have available to me right now. Same with you and dried hominy. So we do what we can, we do what we must, but the intent is there. Exactly. Yeah. And I love that. I love that it's an intentional act.
0: It was very intentional. It was very fun, interesting recipe. Just the intention of it. Yeah. And I found that the flavors and the textures were really, really interesting. The corn and the hominy play off of each other in a really interesting way. Obviously, they're both corn, but they're both different.
1: Right, right.
0: And the beans added this really lovely, creamy texture and earthy flavor. Yum. The zucchini added this beautiful pop of color. I didn't peel it. I thought the size of the zucchini in the recipe was too big, so I did cut it up a little bit. But the sage and the mint I thought were a very interesting combination. It's not something that I would put together. Mm -hmm. I feel like The sage is this more earthy flavor, more fall, Mm. winter, and then mint, more summery and bright. So I wasn't very sure about that. But it really created this interesting interplay of musty and earthy with the bright and the fresh. Mm. I thought, Mm. oh, I don't know if I'm going to add the mint. And I'm like, eh, you gotta. You gotta. And it was really good. The maple syrup created another counterpoint. And then the Mm. smoked salt just it seemed to tie the whole thing together. It was really a very interesting, very good dish. And I served it as a side, which he does suggest in that head note. Uh-huh. And it was delicious that way. And then I added a fried egg the following morning for breakfast because he also mentioned that in his Yum. head note. And I'm a big fan of putting an egg on it. If you could put an egg on something, I will do it. So when I read that head note, yeah. I was like, yeah, yep. Yeah. I'm definitely making this dish. (laughs) (laughs) From an authentic standpoint, I'm sure I totally missed the mark. The cedar wasn't what he would have used. The hominy was from a can. But from an accuracy standpoint, I think that Chef Sean would be mostly pleased with the results. And as you pointed out in our last episode, and we've talked about this so, so, so many times, Authenticity for this recipe and for most recipes is almost impossible. I have no Native American blood in me. I don't live in an area where he harvested the cedar to braise his beans. And the beans were from an entirely mm-hmm. different group of Native Americans. But in the end, as I was creating mm-hmm. this dish, there was a connection, an intention, and a lot more understanding of a culture. So I say, An accuracy win.
1: I love it. I could not agree with you more, actually. it's The intentionality goes so, so, so far when we're cooking. What are we trying to accomplish? Mm. And sometimes it's just we're hungry and we're just trying to feed ourselves. And sometimes we're having a ceremony and to eat a certain kind of food at a certain time in a certain way is part of that ceremony. We've talked about that extensively. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we're gaining something by eating a certain kind of food. We're gaining the properties of that. And I suspect we'll never really stop talking about authenticity and accuracy. Mm-hmm. But but gosh, I think you did a great job. It sounds like a really fascinating experience. It was. And I'm full of thoughts, of course, as always. And I'm incredibly hungry now, which is part of our course, too. And I started thinking back. What, if anything, I was taught specifically about Native American foodways in school. Honestly, if I was taught anything, I have forgotten. Mm. It could be that we were taught and I just don't remember, or it could be that we weren't taught. Memories of tricky things sometimes. I do seem to remember learning a lot about the pioneers, though, of the East Coast, which hard to relate to when you're you know, living in Southern mm. California. But So I do remember learning a great deal about Spanish history, especially Spaniards in Baja California, and how the wild mustard of California grew from or at least mark the passages of Father Junipero Sierra as he and his entourage established Franciscan missions everywhere from modern day San Diego, starting in 1769, going as far north as San Francisco until his death in 1784. The man was prolific, did a lot of walking. (laughs) And in addition to the overall mission to baptize indigenous people, each actual mission location was ultimately equipped to produce the colony's needs with cattle and grain, and then also in second to then create a surplus in order for the mission to trade for goods. For more information about that California golden Camino Real, check out our episode 26, What's in Your Pantry? We talked about turmeric and mustard, and that was one of the stories that we told about that. This idea of colonization of food, also something we explored in episode 52, Edible Bones and Sugar Skulls, as Spanish colonists introduced sugar into Mesoamerica, where it became an absolute staple, certainly a form of religious and ceremonial foods with the sugar calaveras and the pan de muerto and more. You said this already in this episode, but, you know, this idea of when you replace the food stuffs and the food ways and the traditions of an area, when you come in and you say, I know better, or frankly, I don't like what you eat, I want to eat what I like to eat, and you just completely replace you shift a culture dramatically. I think that's really what Chef Sean is getting at is the fact that so much of how the peoples of North America, well, truly all of Mesoamerica, ate was just completely shifted and changed by folks from another place.
0: Yeah,
1: There's something sad in that loss as much as there can be celebration in the gain of tradition and new ideas. We're still sitting on this idea that the United States is a melting pot that the advantageous side of the melting pot being that you learn something about another culture, Mm -hmm. the negative side being that you can lose your components of your culture, which, thinking back again to How America Eats, Clementine Paddleford talking to the Hungarian women in northern Ohio and how adamant they were about teaching their daughters how to cook and prepare Mm -hmm. these Hungarian foods in a traditional way just so that they wouldn't forget One of the things I didn't really realize until we started talking about this cookbook and about indigenous food and foodways is actually how broad this movement has really, truly grown in the last few years. Chef Sean certainly recognized and recognizable as a loud, proud voice advocating for indigenous food. But there are others working to gain recognition. As I mentioned earlier, I was in Spokane, Washington for work earlier this week. And I was just scrolling through Google Maps, seeing what businesses were around. I'm always kind of curious. It's, I think, a way of learning more about a community is what are they selling? What are they offering as a business, right? And I spotted an entry for Indigenous Eats, which actually has two locations. I'm definitely gonna be checking them out when I go back next month. I wasn't able to get over there this visit, but they're doing this work as well. They're trying to establish and grow recognition and provide food that is of the owner's backgrounds and cultures, and I was really excited to see that. Sorry, Spokane, I just didn't think of you as a place that maybe would be on the forefront of this movement. I don't know why I thought that, because I know there's a strong Native presence here, but it was a surprise. So curiosity peaked when I came home. I searched around and, yeah, was reminded that the Al Al Café opened up less than a year ago at the Chief Seattle Club in Pioneer Square to not only showcase Indigenous cuisines and art, but also to provide opportunity and support for Native people experiencing homelessness. And this is in addition to a Native Soul restaurant pop-up and the -the off-the-res food truck. Already, here are four, I'm sure there are many more that I haven't tapped into quite yet, folks that are, are doing their best to represent Indigenous food around us. And it got me thinking that perhaps if we just get really curious, we can find it. And maybe that is ultimately what Chef Sean is asking of us with this cookbook, to open our eyes, our minds, our mouths, our stomachs. (laughs) and to accept that there's more around us than we maybe think that's here. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I had so much fun with this cookbook. I felt that this one was a little bit more cerebral than the other Mm -hmm. ones that we have gone through in this season.
1: Yeah, I would agree.
0: We did compare it in spirit to Nicole Taylor's Watermelon and Red Birds. But Where Nicole was able to refer back to traditional, and I use that term very loosely here, foods for Juneteenth, Mm -hmm. Chef Sean was trying to upend this concept of what is now called Native American fare. Yeah. Up next is a cookbook that brings out a prickly subject that you mentioned just a little bit ago, the melting pot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. On the next podcast, we'll talk about this concept by diving into a vintage cookbook whose main purpose was to promote integration and assimilation of newly arrived immigrants into the American Midwest.
1: Folks, these books are a trio on purpose. This is us talking about how cookbooks can either promote or delineate or encourage a sense of community mm. give it definition that is an easy way to define when a community is by what it eats and so this is part of a bigger exploration into that very topic i can't wait to talk about this one it's a new one to me and one i had not heard before we started our plan for this season and so it's gonna be pretty interesting i'm anticipating having some good food coming through my kitchen for this one and some good conversation yeah <laughs> For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat, and please join our Family Recipes, Traditions, and Food Lore community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode,
0: subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you could spare a couple of minutes to rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or Spotify, we would be ever so appreciative. It helps us to build the As We Eat community, and we love adding more food enthusiasts to our little family.
1: We also publish the As We Eat journal on Substack, and we would be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks like this one, dish discoveries, and travel stops. We're sure you're going to find a subscription level that's perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity
0: driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a little bit of research, a dash of humor, and a whole lot of passion. <laughs>
1: Ba-da-ba-da. Para, para.